0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's summertime, Christmas is coming up, so this week and next week we'll be focusing on some great books that you can be reading or putting under the Christmas tree. Give them to your friends. This will tell you more about liberty, freedom, history and all the great things in the world that the IPA is interested in. Uh, we've got a series of guests coming in today. We have uh, Bella de Brera coming in to talk about Madame Bovary, Andrew Bushnell, uh, Michael Welbeck's serotonin. So a brace of French novels there. Uh, we're talking about Jordan Peterson with Pete Gregory. Uh, Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow will be explained to us by James Bolt. Theodora Pantelik, one of our campus coordinators in the Generation Liberty Program, will be talking about the House of Government, which is a story of Soviet Russia. And Kurt Wallace will be talking about My Father Left Me Island by the National Review, author Michael Brendan Doherty. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to learn more about how to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au where you can also learn more about our research. And I'll just briefly introduce, of course, my co host Chris Berg from RMIT
1: University. Good morning, Scott. This is very exciting. It is very exciting. I'm very much looking forward it's to this. It's completely an experiment. So um, if the episodes aren't very good, we apologise and we'll be back to normal um, production on, uh, in, in 2020. <laughs> That's right. This is, this is our first Christmas. So <laughs> but it, is our, it is our first Christmas, so Merry Christmas.
0: Giving ourselves a, uh, an early Christmas present. I'm um, Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and we'll be back with our first two guests in a moment. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Today we have a brace of French novels, one from the 19th century and one from the 21st. We're going to start off today with Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary and then we're going to go to Michel Welbeck's Serotonin, uh, which is uh, the latest in his series of uh, novels describing alienated Parisian intellectuals. Uh, but we are going to ca- do this... Every, in- every French novel, to clarify. <laughs> that, that's right. That's, oh, <laughs> actually, that was the segment. That's every French novel you ever need to read. No, seriously, though. Uh, and to talk about them, I'm delighted that we have in the studio today, first of all, the director of our Foundations of Western Civilization program, Dr. Bella de Brera. Good morning. Great to have you back. And uh, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Research fellow at the IPA. As I say, we are going to start with Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, which... Bella, you first did, I think, in school. Is that correct?
2: No, I did not because they didn't think that we needed to read things like that at school in Australia. So uh-huh. I had to read oh. it I later it on in life. in Australia. Bushnell did it later. Oh, did there at you school. go. No, it was
1: primarily right. texts for you, was it? It
0: but was. Still. I
2: remember doing a book on police corruption oh. in New South Wales. <laughs> well, it's good to learn about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know all
0: about Nettie Smith but not not, not, exactly. not not French writers of the 19th century. So then how did you come to it? Why, and why are you recommending it? to our listeners today?
2: Well, I'm recommending it because I think it's just such a a great and memorable book. It's one of these books that you read and never forget and always think I I really need to read that again because I'm sure I missed something the first time around. I'm also recommending it because I always talk about the canon of Western civilization and how important it is to know these things, and I thought it's very relevant to, to what I talk about constantly at the IPA about how important the canon is, the great canon of Western Civ. So I think this belongs... In the canon, and I think people need to read it.
0: No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, before we start asking questions, and we have we have many because it it is a landmark book. I just do you want to just outline a little bit about uh, what it's about and who is the eponymous heroine of the story?
2: Uh, so it's um, about um, Madame Bovary. Actually, there are three Madame Bovaries in the book, um, but the 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 main Madame Bovary is the young woman who marries Charles Bovary sort of doctor in a provincial French French village and, and is desperately unhappy because she realizes that its' life isn't as exciting as she thought it was going to be she's constantly looking for for a better reality she's bored she she fought she's not in love with her husband she wants this sort of romantic life that she finds in novels she can never she can never grasp this life and um, and it's it's her story and it's a very typically French pessimistic um but deeply philosophical story. Um it's 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 very French. It couldn't have written by been written by a non-Frenchman, I don't think. And the book came
0: out in eighteen fifty six. And it was essentially set in in that time. Uh,
2: no, it was set in the eighteen twenties. beg your pardon. Um which was in, but you know, for us now in two thousand and nineteen there's not much difference in our minds between eighteen twenty and eighteen fifty. Um but but there was a lot going on in France at the time that it was just during the July Revolution, which was when one king to pose another king which I don't really know very much about I, you never really think about a second French Revolution but and a third and a and third and a, a fourth <laughs> yeah. they obviously like revolutions um, well so what you need
1: to know about it is lay basically la is
2: it's 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 very la is yes <laughs> uh,
1: it's, it's I mean fundamentally it's a critique of her, I mean, it's a, it's the book as I understand it is very critical of Madame Bovary. It, 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 it is,
2: it sort of is, but he wanted to be critical of all his main characters. He didn't want to create a, a hero or a heroine. It was more a criticism of the bourgeois. It was a criticism of the bourgeois that Flaubert actually hated. But interestingly, but is she
1: is she one of the bourgeois in she, that sense? She
2: is. She aspires to the bourgeois, the opera, the good food, the fine clothes, the bourgeois novels. Um, but.
0: But and, and drags her family into debt through And the, drags family into the debt the um, borrowing money for, for possession for this for, for
2: this materialism for this and this is what he hated so much he hated this bourgeois aspiration um, and uh, you know interestingly Flaubert was bourgeois but he never actually rebelled against it as well he he had a very bourgeois existence <laughs> um, um but so i suppose he, he rebelled against it through the book through the through the novel rather than Going out into the streets and beheading people.
3: Yeah, that's why I thought. I mean, casting my mind back to when I read this, but, but <laughs> casting but your mind
1: back to Year Twelve
3: essay. <laughs> year 12, but the, the 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 time that the book is set in is, um, you know, in that transition period from pre-modernity to the industrial age that's coming. There's a there's a scene in the book that sort of presages this coming industrialism, um, and so her quest for a kind of more romantic life and the feeling that she's trapped in this kind of uh, small town provincial life um, with a, frankly, a loser husband. He's not a real he doctor. A loser. <laughs> um, he's, he's a He's really um, not a real doctor. He's a medical he's doctor. He's really not. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> he's got a PhD in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, he's not Academy even, he's not even he's that kind of fake <laughs> doctor. He's just a glorified, he can, he's kind of like a surgeon. He can
2: sort of fix people's legs. Yeah, he kind of cripples a
3: kid at some yeah. point. Yeah. And so... The, um, she's trapped in this life, and 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 she has this dream of this kind of what I, like a kind of a pre-modern dream for her life that's fundamentally unrealisable in her circumstances, um, and so I think that's you know one of the one of the themes of of all well, all is a big claim, of course, but of, of, of French novels from that from that time and going forward well, is that, you know, they, they killed their king and they're still dealing with it. Robert yeah. was it's actually a really obsessed, sorry.
2: sorry, he was really obsessed with modernity and he went off and he took himself off to the Great Exhibition in 1851 in London and just really focused on where the world was going in terms of industrialization and how it was moving forward. And, you know, I don't know if he was, I can't tell from the novel if he was anti or pro-modernity.
0: Well, this is also one of the things. Like as you say, um, uh, Flaubert was, uh, if you like, officially uh, anti-bourgeois, but mm. um, uh, at least in, in his writings. And and this is of course uh, curious. This is an IPA podcast, and and here we are talking about a book uh, which, in many ways, is excoriating the, the the bourgeoisie, the middle class. Like he's watching this rising middle class in France, a transition from uh, the nobility having power to this rising middle class but then he's despising it Mm. and and he perhaps saw himself as part of the, you know, in in many ways this has been the pattern ever since. It's like, well, there's the the bourgeoisie but I'm
1: part of the intelligentsia. Yes. So, so
0: I can look down on them and the nobility.
1: But there's a, there's a left and right romanticism and hostility to some of the industrial modernity. It's not just a French novel thing. It's a 19th century novel thing because you see it in um, you see it in English literature. You see it particularly in the sort of American transcendentalists. You see this reaction, um, uh, this romantic reaction, and much of what we now now would say is sort of this rationalist modern socialism. They they were reacting against that sort of left wing romantic socialistic communalism of the 19th century. That that I, I'm not accusing Gustave Flaubert of being a socialist, but I'm willing to if I got more information. Um, uh, but but it's that sort of hostility to 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 the to the modern age to consumerism and obviously this is a major critique of consumerism or her consumerist ethos as well there and is
2: that but he's also highly critical of the romantis, of romanticism he's highly critical of the romantic movement the whole reason why she he just doesn't like anything she yeah he doesn't like anything no. he said he, but the whole reason why she she went which she was so miserable is because she read these romantic novels and she mm. aspired to this and this idea of a romantic marriage that she just couldn't couldn't achieve as well um, so I think he was anti he was anti romanticism as well as anti modernity. The book is
3: because the book is kind of a, an early or like a, a prototypical um, social realist yeah. book. So it's it, it, the book itself kind of embodies that kind of um, rejection of that of that style. So he uh, he kind of uh, he, for Bear that. It, the, the Romantic Age is kind of culpable in its own in its own destruction because of its kind of uh, the, the sort of fantastical
1: element mm. of it. So we were talking before the podcast, before we started recording this podcast, and you mentioned that you thought Gustave Flaubert was actually probably more interesting than the book itself, even. No, well, <laughs> you know? I think I, th-
2: I love that the book is fascinating, but his life is as equally as as. Uh, as interesting he he was born the son of a provincial doctor so obviously where the ch- the character of Charles, Charles comes from um, and he lived in the sort of the gloomy wing of a hospital and his father used to um, um, do the um, dissecting corpses in a room next to where he, he and his sister played and they'd look over the wall <laughs> to see to see his father you know dissecting corpses and the father would get angry and sh- shoo them away and they'd have to go off and play um, and then they forced him because he was the younger son they made him go and study law and he obviously hated it um, and he had some midway through his career his studies he had a convulsions and he had a sort of what we think is an epileptic epileptic fit and he fell into a coma um, and then he woke up and he realized that he could no longer study the law and he had to stay at home and write novels <laughs> um, so that was quite handy I mean for him. he told people that he had the fit <laughs> and then in 1844 three terrible things happened his father died his dear sister died in and um, in childbirth and um, sorry, and he'd had the nervous attack so he was left with his mother and this, his, nie- his niece so he was in this weird sort of family situation but it wasn't quite a family situation and, and then he just escaped and he went off on this grand tour of, 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 of Egypt and caught syphilis and came back and, that's when, and he spent all the family fortune and that's when he started writing Madame Rover and it took him five years because he just, he just labored over every sentence it, it wasn't just a sort of six month you know off-the-cuff novel it was just it was this it was And this it was about style it was like style it was a new style and as that's well. the thing that's so strong when you read the book i feel like i'm watching a film of the 1820s i feel that the detail is never boring and it's so it's it's so vivid and you walk through the village and you walk through the village in france and you can smell the, the smells he describes in the wind and it's just it's just phenomenal
1: And immediately after the book was published, or very close after the book was published, he was um,
2: charged with obscenity. Yes, he was. And then the book became a a bestseller about uh, uh, two years later. So he was like the
0: the D.H. Lawrence of the 19th century. He was. Guaranteed to uh, drive sales.
2: He basically said to his friends and family, I want to write a book that is a thunderclap, and I think he achieved that.
1: Did did it, as the prosecutor claimed, undermine moral and religious consensus and threaten public safety?
2: I don't know if it threatened public safety, but I mean, she had she had affairs, and you know, they, she was not faithful to her husband. And um, but it's Fr- it's French; they they love these things. It's culture. Well, this is this is what the French do. <laughs> the That's police th- did. <laughs> one,
0: one of the interesting uh, things in it, it's, it's it's so it's got that critique of of middle class. It's got the critique of religion, all the things which offend morals, but. It also, as you say, no one comes out a hero, and it's got one of the great monsters, I think, of fiction: um, uh, the the apothecary, the mm. pharmacist, M- Monsieur Ermey, who's who's uh, makes these impossibly long and boring, and turgid speeches in praise of of secularism. Mm. So this was the other great tradition of, uh, of French society, which was secular and republican, but the. Uh, the person who's speaking up for that tradition is just is the most repulsive oh, of yes. any yeah, of
2: the, them. yes. is not a, he's not a proponent of secularism. He's not he's not he's just attacks everything. he's just anti everything as we said earlier, um, <laughs> and um, and and this character is just awful um, and wins in the end and which wins in the which,
1: which to be honest is a marvelous segue to Andrew's book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Tell us about your book.
3: Uh, so you there's. Arguably a, a straight line between um, Flaubert and Michel Welbeck, uh, who is probably the preeminent French novelist of today. His latest book, uh, the English translation, came out in September. is called Serotonin. Uh, serotonin is, uh, is the, the chemical that your brain releases um, to make you feel happy. In the book, um, it refers to uh, the, the protagonist, the narrator... He is a very depressed uh, agricultural economist, um, and he starts, <laughs> can, new, <laughs> he starts taking a new. I can understand. He starts taking a new pill, which is a, a, a essentially um, pure serotonin, um, and his life kind of unravels from there. He starts and he, he's recounting how it came to this it's, point. Is it a fictional
1: pill or is it a real pill?
3: Uh, it's, it's fictional. It's I, called, I will Google this. just. Oh, I, I'm remember. pretty sure it's fictional. It's called Captorix in the book.
2: All right. sounds, sounds
0: Yeah, because sounds the, um, um, uh, the, the class of drugs that people do actually take, I think, are uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So yeah. yeah. They, they they exactly use, so natural explains, he serotonin. He explains that this is, We just want to really yeah,
3: clarify for our drug-using using uh, listeners. You can't buy it over the counter. So the narrative <laughs> from the <from laughs> mate, <Monsieur laughs> <from laughs> the narrative present is like a few years in the future from now, like a short time unspecified. Um, and he's looking back at his life. And the, and one of the key events that he looks back to is actually extremely topical. He looks back to um, his final encounters with his old friend from college who is a farmer, um, uh, the last in a line of uh, an arist- aristocratic family uh, landholders in the west of France. And he goes to visit him at the moment that this guy's life is, is really unravelling uh, and that the... Um, the traditional farming system in France is is being destroyed by free trade and so there's a, a long uh, segment of uh, where we get the narrator's opinion about reasonable pr- protectionist measures <laughs> that might have saved the French farmer. Um, but basically, and this is I think the thing that really uh, in a deep way connects this kind of book to, to Flaubertius, there's a kind of fatalism about it. So he ends up telling his friend, um, you're, in not so many words, you're just you're stuffed, right? There's no... And, and, and in his own life, he, he comes to a moment um, as he looks back at his life and how he became so depressed, which, it turn, which, which turns on the failed uh, love affairs that he's had in his life and the way that he wrecked them. Um, as he looks back on that, he comes to a moment where a moment of, of decision about whether reaction can actually be affected and whether the violence that it would would require would be worth it. Um, and then this you mean reaction of, in the political sense? So, oh. so in his own life, he he's looking to undo something that he did in the past, which is ruin this relationship with a woman. Mm-hmm. But the, thematically, it, it's tied into. The decline of France, which itself, so looking back to an earlier France, and he comes to a decision point where he has to, where he he he's, he's confronted with, should he's convinced himself that an act of violence might save him, and he talks himself out of it. And this um,
0: this is presumably reaction, like you know, France's um, the, the tradition of uh, Marine Le Pen, and so
3: exa- so the. The, when I the say populist right, yeah, if you like. Exactly. Yeah. So so what he's what he's clued into is this 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 dissatisfaction in particular in rural France with how um, economic changes is disrupted their, their traditional way of life. France traditionally has had a lot of um, smaller land holdings.
1: Um, propped up, up by the EU's Common Agricultural Policy yeah. quite and deliberately. I've got to say, yeah. they got quite a lot of protectionism. Um,
3: Thank so, you very much. And so, yeah, and so the... <laughs> what, what do they want? And so the consolidation of, of land holdings has come quite late to France. Mm. Um, and the book mentions, you know, that this is necessary to compete with uh, farmers in Argentina here in particular, he, he mentions. So, but they're looking at this moment of reaction. His friend, um, who's, who's about to lose his farm he and his farmer friends act out quite violently and later um, the narrator confronts the same possibility um, and without spoiling it, the, 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 the point is that there's this kind of fatalistic element where basically he would rather die of sadness than, um, than commit the act of violence that, would be, that he thinks would be required.
1: It strikes me in, in your description, I mean, uh, Welbeck's last book was Submission, which was about terrorism. And what you're describing is a um, a decision whether to commit that sort of quasi politically motivated violence. Well, I would
3: say that the I would I would say that submission, um, which is the earlier novel, which is about um, what happens to a, an academic in Paris when um, the Muslim Brotherhood win the presidency in France. Um, and he ultimately ends up getting on board with it because of his yeah, own of naked self-interest. <laughs> but the, the... Anything for tenure. But the, <laughs> thing that, the thing that Welbeck's interrogating in both books is the... and that Flaubert was talking about as well is the collapse of traditional French Catholic society um, and what will take the place in that void. The thesis of submission is that the collapse of French Catholicism has created an opportunity for... Um, for Islam. And so it's not it's misread that book I think as a critique of Islam. But it's actually a critique of the French. Why are they in such a vulnerable mm. position? And serotonin makes the same point, but about a collapse in a different part of their society.
0: But how how sorry, we sorry, sorry, I might just because yeah. no. I think you're right. There is that parallel. We haven't just we have created it, but I think it is genuine that we've it the, completely by accident. To be it's honest. completely by accident that we've got these two French novels because de
1: Brera here. and all are first in the alphabet.
0: Mm. So, <laughs> so they're what they in. In one case, they're observing uh, middle class traditional Catholic society and wanting to bring it down, and then. Here we are in the 21st century and it has been bought low, but neither author is particularly impressed by what they see as the available options for its replacement. So so it's not like Welbeck himself is any kind of French Catholic traditionalist and his characters certainly aren't.
3: No, and so the book is littered with references to God, but they're mostly bitter um, because um, everyone would remember, I think, from, from the X-Files, Fox Mulder's poster that says "I want to believe." Damn right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the point that I think that's where the point that the French existentialists have arrived at—that they wish that they could believe. Like in this book, it's quite explicit. He wishes. It actually ends with a reference to Christ. He wishes he
1: could believe in the old tradition, but he can't. Well, it's like and the, so. He chooses to die. But it's
0: how? Like, I, oh, you go.
1: Yeah. How are we to understand then? The um, you've got a book set in the eighteen twenties, and you've got a book set in the twenty tens or so. Um, how 20, are we in the twenty twenties and the 2020s, a, and twenty twenties, the and they're both deeply depressed about the loss of like the what the, is the, the, the word that word came in one word, regicide. French, isn't it the French
2: Revolution? <laughs> no, no, go, revolution. go into it. yeah. No, That's what we were talking about yesterday. <laughs> it all went wrong. The first revolution when they no. regicide yeah. and killing. Yeah, regicide. That's, this was is the forty thousand people. Read,
3: read the later Burke letters on a regicide piece. Yeah. That there's no there's no compromise with this. That once you, if if you are willing to take it upon yourself to bring down an institution that had previously been believed to operate by the will of God himself, um, there's no stopping you. And that's the unravelling. It's just, it just keeps going. There's no, I mean, but, but there's no this sacred This is a, this is a version
1: of sort of ancient grudges that we might say of... I um, don't know if it's an uh, ancient
2: grudge. I think it's a societal thing. I think they, the society is taking a long time to recover from the French Revolution still and from the destruction of the Catholic Church and the replacement with the Freemasonic... Free ideals of, of, of Voltaire and everyone else. And I think this is still what is... I think the French maybe are inclined that way anyway, but plus the French Revolution, it's, it's, this is why these novels are... In existence, and, and it can't and be written by anyone—an Italian or a German—or. Yeah.
0: And we just—we half-in-jest before we talked about being unable to keep track of the various French revolutions. But it, it is true; it has been a continuous process. So we've had um, uh, two different um, uh, royal houses, and then we had the uh, the uh, the Empire. Uh, so beloved of Paul Keating. <laughs> uh, in in uh, after 1852, uh, so and then and then in terms of the republics we're, up, republics, we're in the fifth republic. That's a lot of republics. And as late, you know, uh, Charles de Gaulle uh, famously thought it was get, the fifth republic was going to die in 68. Like he, he scampered to Germany and they had to sort of push him back over the border <laughs> and say, man, i <laughs> you know, And safe. And, and, and so this is con- it cr- it's created this permanent sort of meta-constitutional argument that you don't just – you're not a liberal or a conservative. You're actually arguing for, well, should we bring down this system of government and try again?
1: Now, um, uh, Welbeck, of course, uh, as, as you've suggested, is um, – uh, let's say he's not of the left per se. Um, and I was looking up a Guardian review of um, uh, of serotonin and I'll just quote that. It is telling that he reserves his real tantrums for environmentalists, the EU, <laughs> the state of the train system, which, okay, fair enough, or the trend for casting mixed race women. Um, uh, uh, he's not of the left, am I? Uh,
3: no, it's this, <laughs> it, but it's... I just wanted it's to not, quote the Guardian. It's, it, it is, it's... Michelle Welbeck would probably be on the right, although I think um, his characters always uh, associate themselves with having been on the left as younger people. I think Welbeck would say the same about himself. It's, but it's, it's what right, this kind of right-wing politics is what happens when um, conservatism loses faith. Um, and so it's a kind of faithless right-wing um, politics that doesn't really believe that there's any available... Solutions within the confines of what we now consider to be civilized society, and that's where the. So this book is actually there are passages in it that are quite obscene, um, and those kinds of transgression are actually part of the. It's part of the shtick. It's it's like there's really nothing that could stop me from writing this this chapter, um, and I, I. So I, if you're offended, then. You might you might want to inquire into why.
0: <laughs> so there's a trigger warning that goes with this book for, uh, for
3: m- well Bec- Wellbeck. Wellbeck f- is not really the for, the, for the faint-hearted.
2: It wouldn't have passed the 1850s. No, uh, no, it would have been definitely uh, undermining moral and religious consensus
1: <laughs> slash threatening public safety. <laughs>
0: so, but we are recommending both of these books. We do uh, suggest that you read them in chronological order, um, in the way that we've talked about them today. Uh, I'd like to thank very much, uh, Bella DeBira Thank you. It was a pleasure. For coming into the studio and Andrew Bushnell. Thank you. That's been terrific. Thank you. Back in a moment. This is a part of the podcast I've really been looking forward to. It's like a crossover episode with the Young IPA podcast. We're joined by the two terrific co-hosts of that program. On my right, James Bolt. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, no, guys, p- I'm, sorry, meant to say that. I'm so used to hosting Anyway, Pete Hi, welcome. And, and the other guy, the other awesome guy. Pete Pete It is good to be here yeah. Yeah. Thanks and for having us on again Yeah, books, today we're talking books For a book report
4: Yeah, who, And uh, James, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first So uh, My book um, nominated for this one is Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow It's the account of how he and a few others broke the Harvey Weinstein uh, story uh, It reads like a thriller It's Told supremely well. I mean, you've got all the elements of just like classic airport fiction. You've got you know uh, ex Mossad agents investigating him. You've got the dark and powerful forces trying to stop him from ever reporting the story. Uh, editors that don't want the story to break. But you've got the heroes in the middle just trying to tell people's uh, terrible stories.
1: So, so take us through. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with the Weinstein story, but how Ronan Farrow cam- comes to the To this discovery and... So he starts doing
4: uh, an investigative report just on, uh, like, sexual assaults in Hollywood. And And he's with NBC at that He's with NBC, the Today Show, and it just keeps coming back that everyone's like talking about Harvey, but no one wants to talk about it on camera. So he starts going, well, maybe there's a story here. And eventually he starts talking to more and more uh, influential actresses. And Rose McGowan seems to be the, like she's the first person that sort of talks about it on camera in an engaging way. And then that opens up other avenues and then people start dripping through. Okay. You might want to talk to this person who's also got a story. Might want to talk to this person, but at the same time, Harvey Weinstein's people who are also close to these people uh, start going, Harvey, they're trying to report on this. You might want to stop it. So Ronan in turn starts getting calls from people like, oh, I've got my own story or I'm a journalist. I've investigated this. Uh, but before I tell you what I know, like who else are you talking to? And they'll tell Ronan a story he won't be able to use and then go straight back to Harvey, which Ronan finds out later if reading emails, go straight back to Harvey and go, okay, here's
1: what he knows so far. Uh, Weinstein is not just a marginal Hollywood character no He's not at sort all. of uh, what what is striking about harvey weinstein is if you were watching movies in the 1990s it was the miramax productions that were a yep. legendary revolution of, of of film and weinstein's produ- productions tarantino movies like Tarant- all the tarantino movies goodwill hunting english patient yes for in love and
4: just on that harvey weinstein has been thanked more than god in o- oscar acceptance <laughs> speeches like just to give you an idea of how powerful this guy is Mm. Yeah.
0: So, how much of that, um, uh, if you like that, when that starts, um, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but but you know, it's just people saying, you know, don't talk about. How much is fear, and how much is it sort of a genuine closing of ranks with Weinstein?
4: I, it's. Uh, What what do you mean by closing of ranks?
0: Oh, that, that, you know, he's a Hollywood insider and they really don't want the, the veil lifted on what really goes on in Hollywood.
4: Bit of both. So, one, Harvey's got a, you know, pretty aggressive legal team and they will, and they do try and sue to stop things coming out. But the second part is, like, I mean, NBC had its own problems as well. I mean,. Uh Ronan Farrow worked on the Today Show for NBC, who was host which was hosted by Matt Lauer, who then goes down for his own uh, you know, sexual assaults. And uh there's a bunch of other people at NBC who get reported on. So like NBC don't want the veil removed because they know they'll cop it just as bad as everyone else does. And that was the whole thing. It was like the reason it took so long for Harvey Weinstein's story to come out, in a sense, was because a lot of other people were protecting other people that they
1: knew. So what what does it tell us about either Hollywood culture, but also political culture as well? Because yeah. I mean uh, one of the other really important things to know about Harvey Weinstein he was a massive Democratic donor. Indeed, um, so ah, it's an not just Hollywood; it's politics. And
4: there's an amazing quote in the book where Ron Farrow tells. Um Uh, Meryl Streep about what he's investigating and she goes oh but he donates to such good causes like (laughs) as if like that's (laughs) like Hillary Clinton yeah yeah exactly Uh, and Hillary Clinton also uh, was interviewing was being interviewed by Rona Farrow for a separate book and she stopped returning Ronan Farrow's calls the second this story starts to get a bit of traction Hillary Clinton yeah so what it tells me about political culture is like we all worry about oh Hollywood they're being controlled by the left or Hollywood they've got a different moral basis than anyone else maybe that's true but also Hollywood have no morals is basically what I'm reading here. Like how many of these people went to, like Harvey Weinstein went to, uh, you know, uh, we've got a, like dinners to support victims of sexual assault and then was doing it two days later himself. I mean, these people are controlled by money and Harvey Weinstein made people money and therefore they're going to protect Harvey Weinstein. So to say that they're being captured by the left, I mean, once this the second right-wing movie starts selling, Hollywood's just going to go right. I mean, I think that's one of the things about the Joker as opposed to a lot of these other left-wing movies. That made money. Okay, we're going to go do that one then.
0: Well, um, you mentioned it's, it's like a thriller. It's a, so let's, let's go back to Ronan and because it is very interesting. So he's at NBC and he starts. It gets blocked essentially. Yeah. Uh, but he really takes his his job as a as a journalist seriously, and he's yeah. obviously quite a um, got a strong sense of self. So he doesn't he doesn't just lie down and, and, and forget about it.
4: No, no. So yeah, he he works for NBC, but he breaks it through the New Yorker because NBC say we don't want to report the story. And that's another thing I'd say about like what it tells us culturally is that like Harvey Weinstein would be still doing this today if it weren't for someone from the inside. I mean, Ronan Farrow being the son of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. <laughs> I don't know if Scott wants to weigh into that one, but sec, Scott on that. But because uh, and uh, Ronan says this himself, the only reason Rose McGowan opened up to him because they were both famous and like she was someone that he saw and there were plenty of journalists who tried to break the Harvey Weinstein story before but they didn't have the insider cloud that can open up doors that a famous surname does which is good news for me but also good news for uh, <laughs> you know everyone involved that it did come out
0: yeah I mean the general principle is all revolutions are really started with a fracturing of the uh, the elites
4: yeah yeah exactly but I think this is the elites like one of the elite finally breaking it
0: could I ask a question no if you're gonna
5: um, you could like ask. to sell this book right yeah And I don't want you to give anything away. What was the single
4: most amazing thing that you read? Uh, I mean, like the whole thing. Uh, The Meryl Streep quote was Mm. just... I had to put the book down and just really (laughs) read that one out. That was incredible. And who knew as well? So? Who knew? Uh, Well, it's hard to say. And Ronan Farrow doesn't get into who absolutely knew, but... I mean, you know, like it did seem Hollywood's open secret and you do see those clips come out of Seth MacFarlane in an award ceremony congratulating all the best supporting actress nominees for not having to pretend to be in love with Harvey Weinstein anymore. Like clearly people, it was like an open rumor or open secret. Uh, But yeah, I mean, just... The stuff about him finding out later that he's being investigated by former Mossad agents and the people that were trailing him and he's going, am I going insane or are people trailing me? And yes, people are trailing him. I mean, it, it, it's it reads like a Grisham thriller. So, it's so,
1: incredible. So apart from obviously putting pressure through um, his friends and sort of the political relationships that he had was uh, did he have a sort of legal strategy to prevent this from coming out yeah was the second
4: they get a whiff they could just get cease and desist from you know a bunch and then on you, what they, on what grounds i uh, libel defamation yeah. I, like i can't remember the specifics but you know the lawyers are calling every three times a day at that point and if you're a journalist like if you're an editor and you've got other things to do and you're not 50 50 you're not completely sold on this story Uh, It just uh, 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 eventually at a point, it just becomes easier to say, let's just go do
1: another story. And and that's in the United States, which, of course, has some of the um, uh, famously soft defamation laws in the world. And one of the things that is striking about the Me Too movement in Australia is that it has been very constrained by Australia's very um, rigid defamation laws um, themselves as well.
4: I mean, I mean that's like the path of defamation law. It's used mm-hmm. by the powerful to silence people that are less powerful than them. That's yeah. just how defamation law ends up working.
0: Is um, in the book. So Ronan Farrow, um, uh, uh, son of Mia Farrow and her husband Woody Allen. Um, obviously, with Woody Allen's history, there's a, uh, a story of uh, you know is he a sexual pred- predator? Certainly, was accused of such. Uh, he denies it. Uh, Speaking of defamationals, uh, but the... (laughs) Let that out. um, And he does look strangely like Mia Farrow's first husband, Frank Sinatra. But anyway, well, maybe that's for another (laughs) day. (laughs) Just raising it, you <laughs> went straight back into it. There Canceled was no reason re- well, to. Well, you back left it hanging. It. I didn't, <laughs> the question is so, is he a character in his own book? Does he actually reflect on his own experience and how he came to this story? Is that is that part of this book and does that make it even more interesting? Well, it
4: does come up a bit because the journalists are like, okay, we need to look at whether or not there's a conflict of interest here. Like, are you going after Harvey because he released Woody Allen's uh, films because like that might oh. cloud your reporting? And then when Harvey gets his legal team involved, that's the uh, angle they hit every time. Like, oh, this is just. You know, a, vend- a, a vengeful yeah, right. family coming after me because of what uh, Woody might have done. Uh, and the, he does eventually also tell of Harvey consulting Woody Allen about like, well, how did you go through this when it came out for you? And Woody saying, okay, well, you know, trying to play both sides, but also going like, look, Harvey, you know, you've done a lot for me. And, you know, here's what I did and here's what you should do as well. So,
0: so he's, mean- he's briefing out on, on, on how to shut down his own son.
4: Uh, I, in, in, a, in a sense, I guess, was like, not shut down, but just like my, what, what the experiences will be for Harvey when this comes out.
5: What's happened to this guy since? Like, is he? I have a- no idea. Like,
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he, he didn't go to jail. He was at a comedy club recently. I mean, there was a viral video of him going to a comedy club and the comedian, uh, going after him and people booing the comedian rather than Harvey. I mean, it's Hollywood elite. Yeah, look, look up
1: uh, Weinstein is on bail, so yeah. um, he is being prosecuted for a range of um, uh, offences at the moment. But, yeah, he, he was on bail and then he appeared at that comedy club um, and, and as you were saying, um, he was... Uh, sh- it, the the comics on stage did not respond very well to his, his presence there, and you can completely understand that. Yeah, but the crowd didn't respond well to the comics pointing that out. So, <laughs> I don't know. As look, it was a said, very tense comedy show.
4: Yeah, yeah, but a lot just are similar like, to my ones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah so yeah.
4: Hollywood is apolitical. Harvey Weinstein can make people money; he'll be back. Mm. Roman Polanski can make money uh, money; he got back. Woody Allen can make people money; he got back.
0: Clearly, we live in a time when morals are confused. One of the men trying to do something about that is Jordan Peterson. Oh, what a segue. That's... Thank you, Pete. You know, uh, that's why I wanted applause. to bring you in, you know, just teach you some <laughs> yeah, of the there's
4: tricks. no follow-up questions. We just had the segue. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now and, talk. And you have actually been reading 12 Rules for Life. That's right. I've got the copy here.
5: James didn't do this, but there you go. I borrowed my pot coffee. Do yourself a favour. <laughs> I offered to go and get say. a new
0: one. I was you did, actually. <laughs> uh,
5: we
1: just weren't going to pay be. for it. <laughs>
5: What do you want to know, folks? Well, what well, you? Why do you, it? Why, why do you recommend why it? Why do you recommend oh, well, it to
1: our, our dedicated listeners? I
5: recommend it because I read it and I enjoyed it, which is rare. It's look, it's sort of the whole. It's just the whole Jordan Peterson thing about you know take responsibility. But the thing is, so I've seen a lot of his YouTube videos. I don't watch the long ones. I just watch the little snatch ones. <laughs> you know where he destroys someone but doesn't. Um, so I read the book, but the book that goes into a lot more detail about the archetypes and the you know. What do they call the myths beneath the, these ideas that he's having? And it's really interesting, and you should check it out. For the Young RPA podcast this week, we're actually doing a little bit of a Jordan Peterson special. I think this is coming out after. Is it? No, we haven't decided. Well,
1: we haven't <laughs> decided. Okay, <laughs> get behind the go curtain. Go through. It's <laughs> all. It's all online anyway. Yeah. So There's all a schedule somewhere.
5: This very morning, we spoke to Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela oh. Peterson, which oh, was that's really so exciting. It is exciting. Uh, we talked to her. A little bit about Jordan Peterson, a little bit about her stuff, but um, yeah, you know, it's all, all interesting stuff. And I mean, it's it's interesting to read because he's such a social social and cultural phenomenon at the moment. And if you haven't read it, you should really check
1: out what. So, so what going is it, what is your main takeaway? Is it clean up your room? Yeah. Is it um, what are the changes you're going to make in your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, cancel the rest of your appointments, everyone. But um,
5: <laughs> no, look, the one the so there's twelve rules for life, and you know there's a whole lot of them. But uh, I think the one tell the truth is the one that you're sort of like wow, that's. Um, because I thought I did tell the truth, but then when you really um, go through it, you do tell a lot of little lies—not to the good people listening to this podcast, but just in life. Uh, and so, not doing
0: that, yeah, and is you a big tell them, and, and his point is, you tell them to yourself. That's you, right, you yeah, tell them to yourself, and, unless you, you actually tell the truth. And 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 he's uh, he's a great um, proponent of the idea of the word. Like he's got that famous. Um, uh, 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 pod, not podcast. He was filmed at a lecture theatre in Canada, talking about Genesis. You know, and you know, in the beginning it was the word. And he said, "I'm going to talk about uh, the book of Genesis in the Bible." And he got through the first twelve lines. But <laughs> yeah. you know, there's there's a lot for Peterson. There's a lot in this idea of it's about the business of speaking. Yeah. And here we are on a podcast speaking. So yep. so it's not just that you must hew to the truth; you must speak it. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you found that's changed your life, Pete? Well, I wouldn't say it like, I mean, a little bit. <laughs> it hasn't
5: been a revolutionary thing, but uh, no, like it definitely is sort of like a bit more honest and not telling the truth. It's lying when you're, um, you've are got something to say, but you don't say it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So if you're in a conversation and you're like, you know, well, you know what I mean, but they're having a conversation at something and you're like, I'm not going to start an argument, so I'm just not going to say that. Yeah, That I, is I, also a form of dishonesty. The,
1: the potentially
4: I'm, big, I'm r- big on that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> to my mind, the big argument that Peterson has, particularly in this book, is um, that before you try to change the world, you should change yourself. Yep. Um, and that's a arguably revolutionary view of thinking about political action. Um, And it's also it's not one I'm super comfortable with, I have to say, Um, uh, because I think it's sort of recursive where you haven't fixed yourself enough. You haven't quite received perfection before you can start helping out the world. Um, And that might be a um, uh, that might not be a fair summary of it. But how do you think through that tension? Um, The idea that uh, there are so many people out there who want to um, make a difference, but they don't they try to make a difference before. They look after themselves, or or is is Peterson right, or or, or do you think that's an unfair characterization?
5: I think that's a good point because like you can never fully fix yourself, so you're never going to be perfect. Which means, based on that logic, you would never get involved on any political issues ever. But and that's an issue for like a lot of people who criticise Jordan Peterson. Like, well, you know, we need collective action on climate change, so we can't wait until you know individuals get their life together. But I think just um, it's sort of like. It gives. It's, I would say that gives people a little bit of hope because there's these massive problems that you can't really solve. But his focus is on, well, if you can just solve the, the problems that are in your life, and like start with the smallest problems and get, and build up, uh, you can start to make a difference. And if you start to make a difference in your life, it affects positively the people around you, and it affects positively people in your community. And um, and that is a is a much more sort of what would you know optimistic way of thinking about change than like, wow, you know climate change is a good example if if that's something that you're interested in or or big economic problems or whatever it might be so I think it gives people a form of hope but I do think that you can't just you can't just turn your back on macro problems I agree with that part
0: Pete I was wondering so you know on your podcast you and James have interviewed some um, uh, terrific politicians and thinkers you know from uh, in conservative and libertarian traditions yeah um, and Peterson you know is a, is a hero on the center right to many people but he comes from a pretty sort of odd odd place in a way you were talking about the myths and the archetypes like he's in you know 25 years of deep Jungian psychology yeah, yeah. And, you know this German Swiss um, strange man you know one-time disciple of Freud um, and but he's and you know Peterson's talking about God, but he won't say whether or not he believes in God. Yeah. He's sort of a, he, he talks about the Christian culture and ethos without saying whether he's really Christian. Did you did you find it helpful, not helpful, strange, not strange to have him talking about some of the, these important principles which a conservative would agree with, but he's, he's coming at it from such an odd direction?
5: Uh, that's a good question. Do you mean? To specifically, yeah. So he's not—he's not quoting
0: John Stuart Mill, or yeah. he's not, not coming to it um, uh, directly from Christianity. Say he's mm-hmm. just like these archetypes are important, deep buried in our brains somewhere. Is are these archetypes, and you know, I can talk to God internally and never be out of my own brain. I mean, is that, is that just weird or strange or helpful? Or not helpful. I—I found it helpful. I don't, I don't
5: think he comes like he's not really a political. Like, he doesn't come from a political standpoint, really. He sort of comes from a more psychological standpoint. And I think sometimes when he speaks about politics, it's like, nah, mate, you should stick to psychology. But um, <laughs> the, but, um he... Those... Yeah, look, I I did found, find those things illuminating, the yeah. the myth aspect of it. I thought, you know... I sort of never I really thought that myths, these old myths were that important. Like, they're just stories that people told each other 3,000 years ago, or whatever. But I did see to see, start to see that there are things you can take from that that... Makes sense in your own life, and, and
1: that's one of the things to, um, that does make this genuinely novel. It is a conservative or liberal leaning book, and it's being consumed by a conservative or liberal leaning audience. But that um, it's not a book of which is, as you say, a collection of John Stuart Mill quotes, or it's not a disquisition on Hayek or the American Constitution or our fundamental liberties. It's a disquisition about how you, as a person, can be a better person from a uh, from, from a background of mythical um, psychology.
0: Yeah, and he's saying those 3,000-year-old those myths still matter. They yeah. still matter to us, to and, each and every one of us.
5: And the reason it's, like, important is because it's popular. So even if it's a completely stupid book, it's like, why is this so popular? Mm. It's, it's um,
0: arrived at a moment. What are, yeah, people are looking for it. And, and, you know, he's been accused of this being of interest mainly to young men as if that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah,
5: terrible, unbelievable.
0: That, that, that a young man might actually yeah, yeah. That, how bad is that start taking responsibility for their lives exactly right uh, and sorry what, what were you we going to say <laughs> oh,
5: that, <laughs> I started that, talking <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah uh, and so that and so you were just saying oh you know it's really of interest of people on the on the centre right it's also heaps of people that aren't political at all really enjoy it like me and Bolt in, in, interviewed this footballer who had read it or had liked Jordan Peterson and attended one of his events Tom McDonald didn't have a great year after we interviewed him. That's not (laughs) the point. Um, And I don't think he was political at all. Like, I just think he sort of resonated.
0: Yeah, no, it's a genuine cultural phenomenon. Thank you for sharing that with us, Pete. Some great reading there. Uh, If you're uh, one of those who haven't actually yet come to it you know uh, Peterson through his videos, a bit like Pete had, it's uh, definitely a book worth uh, picking up and reading and thinking about. I'd like to thank James Bolt. Thank and you. Pete Gregory for coming in today Thank to you very much. talk about these two wonderful books. We have two terrific books to discuss in our next segment. And to tell us all about those two books, we have two wonderful young people at the IPA. First of all, Kurt Wallace. Thanks for having me. Research fellow in our research team. And also Theodora Pantelich, who's a campus coordinator with our Generation Liberty program. That's right. Thanks so much for coming in. And first
1: time on Looking Forward.
0: Yeah, that's right. Very exciting. Welcome yeah, to Looking yeah, This forward. is a trial, to be clear. <laughs> okay.
6: I'll I'm try sure. not to disappoint everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: sure you'll be fine. And um, no, and we, we have actually discussed the book off air, so um, yes. I know that uh, you're passionate about some of the themes contained therein, so I'm very much looking forward mm-hmm. to this discussion. But we might um, start with uh, Kurt's book. Yep, sure. Sorry. So what have you been reading, Kurt, and, and why should everyone also read it?
7: Yeah, so my pick is um, My Father Left Me Ireland by Michael Brendan Doherty. He's the, the cover if you can, can see that. I haven't that. got the book, uh, but he've got a printout yeah, of got the, the print cover. It's very impressive. Kindle, it's a digital so, age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, so Michael Brendan Doherty uh, writes for the National Review. Uh, and I came across this book, it was published in April this year, um, from listening to uh, Russ Roberts' econ talk. Uh, he was on there and also I follow uh, michael brendan doherty on twitter as well which is, is pretty good on twitter there so um so this book is a book about um many things about family culture and, and nation uh it's written as um the chapters are written as letters to his father who was an absent father so his mother uh, raised him in new jersey in the united states and his father uh, lived in Ireland and he only saw him um, in, in bits and spats uh, throughout his childhood, you know, a week here and there. So um, so the main themes is really about like this um, this disconnect he has in, you know, this, the fatherlessness of his childhood but also um, his mother tries to raise him with this Irish culture. Um, so he sort of has this sort of received um, Irish culture from his mum's attempt to, to raise him... Um, as an Irish person in the United States, and then having this this strange relationship with his father, uh, and then like the relationship with Irish culture more broadly. So, um, so I think it's it's interesting for a number of reasons. But I think um, the main theme is sort of like he has this broken family, which then has this sort of. Um, uh, divided culture where he sort of has this cultural divide with his father. Um, and then it has a lot of implications for, for nationhood and how people think about nationality. Um, I think one of the, the themes that goes throughout the the letters is sort of this, um, his 1990s childhood materialist sort of worldview versus a a view of, of na- nationality. And he, and he brings out, he keeps... Um, going back to the Easter Rising uh, in Irish history which is an Irish rebellion in 1916 during World War 1
0: where so, so that's that's how he sort of found his way when he so this came later when he was trying to find his way back to it so so you're saying he grew up in New Jersey experiencing that sort of um, if we've been that alienated existence if you like or um, the ethos of the time was about individualism and you know do what you want and be who you want to be and and then this – the book, as I understand it, is about later then he found his way, found that connection back to Ireland and, and then to the, to the story of Ireland and the, and the Easter Rebellion and so yeah, on. Yeah, so
7: it? It, he sort of always has a, an interest in, in Irish uh, history throughout his childhood. Um, but then as he has um, – he, he gets married and he has a child and he starts thinking about, you know, how am I going to uh, you know, pass on my heritage to, to my daughter – and he starts um, starts to think more about his childhood and his his father uh, and that culture and how um, you know culture is transmitted from his father to his daughter. So that's sort of um, the catalyst, I think, for him trying to rekindle a relationship with his father and to think more um, deliberately about his culture and self consciously about preserving his culture and passing it on in that way. So um, yeah, so so I think that's a really important part of the book is that. Um, the birth of his daughter is this big moment in his life.
1: It, it's not an explicitly political book, is it, really? But it, it sort of comes in the middle of this conversation that the American conservative movement is having about the role of the nation and um, uh, the, the, the relationship between individualism, citizen and the nation. Am I right?
7: Yeah, so it's not he's not um, making political points throughout. He does bring up um, the Irish, like the Easter Rebellion a lot. Um, but that's sort of more... Strongly
1: a pro or strongly anti? Well, pro <laughs> from <laughs> what I understand. No, well,
0: I, I think understand. it's a bit well, more... Well, no, no, it's a serious point. I mean, it, it's... And, and that was one of the things that interested me because, I mean, he's an American at the end of the day. His father might be Irish, um, but he's dived into Irish history and, I mean, they're following the rebellion and uh, the home rule, there was a, a civil war in Ireland. And, and so to say... You know, even though I grew up in New Jersey, I'm going to pick that side, and I'm going to say this is the correct tradition in Ireland, and going down through Eamon de Valera, and so you know, that's um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. I must yeah. admit, it's like, does he have the skin in the game to actually be <laughs> be be saying? All I don't of think that? he's
7: necessarily um, being coming out on one side or the other. I think he's pointing to these people and and contrasting it to this sort of materialistic. Um, worldview that he sort of um, had surrounding him in the United States, and pointing to these guys and thinking, you know, from from like the American perspective, this these actions of these guys in the Easter Rebellion looks crazy. You know, he's they're so connected to to the nation and they're willing to die for the nation, um, which is in just complete antithesis of his sort of received worldview in his mm. culture of just not caring about things that deeply so and so looking so foolish So there to care are, about there are things, things
0: worth dying for. is, is Yeah,
7: so, so I don't think it's necessarily uh, an endorsement of their politics. I think they were fairly fairly radical and, you know, he's obviously separated by, you know, a century um, from those people. But I think he's really using that as um, a way to sort of start thinking about nationality and, and culture.
1: So the Wall Street Journal had this to, – to, to Scott's point, the Wall Street Journal had this um, line – about um, the book, it's a sort of paradoxical combination of revolutionary politics, so his um, uh, his interest in the 1916 rebellion and conservative nostalgia, which makes the book actually profoundly American in a lot of ways. So it's um, conservative, conservative nostalgia for um, rebellions of the past. Um, uh, what I what I think is. And, and, and I'm actually really looking forward to reading this book because um, it does strike me as one of the more interesting and, um, uh, and honest tacklings of the nationalism question that's come out of the conservative movement, um, and I rate it much more highly than, than some other things that have come out recently. Um, but what strikes me is that it, it, it sounds like, having read the reviews and listened to your description, it sounds like what he likes is an imaginary version of Ireland. It's either an imaginary version of Ireland in the past or it's an imaginary version of Ireland as it is. Because Ireland now is hardly a sort of conservative bastion in in a lot of ways. you know, they've recently um, legalized same-sex marriage so through a referendum. Through a referendum, yeah. they, uh, which of course we used as a, as precedent in Australia, they um, legalized abortion again through a referendum because it was in the in the constitution itself. And and just looking at the polls this morning, ninety two percent of Irish people support staying in the EU and think it's been good for Ireland. So I I, I sort of wonder with a lot of these conversations we have about. Um, the, the nation and um, the ideal nation and how we should support it. it. It just strikes me as that's an imaginary story.
7: Yeah, well, I think he talks a lot about, like, this sort of um, dying nature of, of Irish um, culture and about, like, how um, you know, the dwindling numbers of people actually speak um, Irish um, as opposed to English, even in Ireland. And I think um, he refers to, uh, you know, a lot of these things. But I think the the main thing is how do we preserve what we... Have received from from our um, from our families, and how do we um, evaluate those things and pass those things on to our children? I think that's that's sort of um, part of the the story. It's not um, there is a lot of that element of sort of this nostalgic and trying to fight for something that looks like it's it's lost, and that's sort of why he brings up a lot of like the Easter Rebellion um, theme because you know. To, to people at the time, it looked sort of hopeless. Um, their thing, and, and ultimately the the Easter Rebellion failed uh, in in their attempt to to reassert Irish autonomy. So I think that's that's an interesting theme. The the one thing I wanted to 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 bring up was also that he talks about the importance of traditions um, and not just trying to you know make everything up yourself. And I think that the one of the the things that got me interested in was when I, when I heard him speaking with Russ Roberts on, on Econ Talk, where he was talking about um, the death of his mother and how um, he was like an only child um, and trying to organise the funeral for his mother. And, and he says that, um, I was just given an endless series of menu options to begin creating a meaning out of this for myself. Uh, and he's saying that he was effectively told, make a meaning out of your mother's death for yourself entirely from scratch, if you like. And his conclusion is that it's cruel, in a way, because it robs you of the ability to know whether you have grieved properly or whether you have done the right thing. It leaves you second guessing. Uh, and,
0: and that was that was tremendously affecting. And we'll we we'll link to that because he was contrasting that not um, not interestingly enough with Ireland, but with the Aran Islands. You know, so sort of, you know the the. The island he's talking about preserved in aspect where where the when someone dies there's a, there's not just a funeral it's a series of rituals yeah and everybody knows what those rituals are and uh, and you walk through that process as opposed to that menu of options I think that's a great piece to, to read out in terms of that that contrast
7: yeah so I think it's um, it's interesting because it's like he's saying that there's a value in culture and even um, uh, you know. When he has this sort of a, this American culture, which is basically um, uh, tarnishing tradition and, and not giving you um, rituals or, or things to a way of processing big life events, I think that he really um, brings out well that you know the importance of these traditions and the role that they play uh, in in people's lives and giving um, people meaning through through life circumstances.
1: Theodora, where do you fall down on this on on this question about the um, role of tradition and culture?
6: I mean, tradition is very important in my life. My background is Serbian. Um, my father is an, a priest in the Orthodox Church. So these um, issues have always been, I guess, at the center of my life. Um, growing up, obviously, attending a Serbian church, being raised in that faith, speaking the language at home. so. Um, I mean, Serbs have always been super, super nationalist. It's very, it's very, it's, it's, uh, I think you'll find it's hard to find a Serb in Melbourne who does not have very, very strong opinions about, you know, Croatia, Albania, doesn't hate all the neighbouring countries and so on. I think that's, I
7: I think that's an interesting point because um, I was thinking about my own childhood in, in country Victoria and sort of very monolithic culture and, Thinking that, you know, hating, I the town, uh, the road, <laughs>
1: hating the town two miles down the road or hating the town two miles down the road? Well, th- yeah, there was a lot more of that. Um,
7: I remember the fierce rivalry between Cobden and Camperdown and <laughs> football, um, you know, ten, 10 minutes of that by car. But um, the, the interesting thing is that um, I never really thought about my culture growing up because there was never anything.
0: A fish doesn't notice the water that it swims in. Yeah, it, and
7: there wasn't anything, like, it wasn't threatened uh, in a way that. Um, Clearly, uh, Irish uh, culture is uh, threatened, and so you sort of think because it's threatened, I'm going to really self-consciously identify with this thing. Whereas if you're just living um, in a broader culture in Australia, you, you don't necessarily think about what makes you know the way that you live unique from from other people. So I think that's that's an interesting point. And then obviously, if you're um, you know, if you're recently um, in Australia from from another country, then you think about um, your culture and your family's culture is very is very different from the surrounds. So I think that's an interesting
1: point. But, but I mean, what we're talking about here is um immigrants' attitude to to the place that they came from, and they may not have been born there, or, but but they certainly feel some sort of identity. And part of my claim is that that um that sensation, that identity, can be quite different or can diverge sometimes quite significantly from, the, the culture and the identity of the people who are still yeah it's in a, that it's a dias- it's yeah. an effect of the diaspora the, the, the diaspora they, they sometimes create a um, a version of the originating culture that they may not that, that may not exist, and I'm not suggesting that, that the Irish culture or the the Serbian culture or what have you doesn't exist, but it can be quite strikingly differently seen by migrants who have mm. made the decision to go elsewhere
6: yeah.
0: And one of the things uh, for Serbia, of course, is um, uh, that rather than uh, it being uh, dissolving from within in this sort of alienated world of, you know, maybe New Jersey in the nineteen uh, the 1990s that um, uh, he's described, um, Serbia had external forces. It was very much yeah, about the right. formation of Yugoslavia, Tito, the mm. communists. Uh, Which leads me neatly to the book that you're going to talk about, (laughs) which is uh, about communism uh, uh, under the Soviets. It is,
6: yeah. So the book I've chosen is called The House of Government. It's by Yuri Sleskin, who's a historian at UC Berkeley. And so it's basically about this building called the House of Government in Moscow in the 1930s near the Kremlin, which housed um, some of the top communist officials, some of Stalin's closest uh, politicians friends and politicians and so on uh, until they were all started getting purged, and, you know, during Stalin, Stalin's purges started just, getting... Just purged. for the living room. Yeah. So, so they had
0: very nice apartments right up until the time they were taken out and yeah, shot. Yeah,
6: basically. So they started being rounded up, you know, uh, it says in the book uh, it was unusual to have one night with less than 100 executions. And so, yeah, so, you know, by the hundreds they were let out of this building and shot in the dead of night. And so the book is really interesting because it doesn't start at the building, it starts way before the revolution when all these people were students, uh, when they h- had just started reading um, Marx and you know, just started to become radicalized. So um, the parallels between the students in Russia in the 1890s, early 1900s, and the students of today are actually uh, very cl- clear. Like uh, some things that jumped out at me were uh, the students Felt who came from sort of privileged middle class backgrounds, they felt this sense of shame at their own unearned privilege, which is something that you hear again today. And then the students who supported the cause of uh, communism in Russia, they didn't necessarily understand that or support, you know, the s- seizing the means of production or whatever. They associated it with, um, you know, tr- the cause of Polish independence or whatever the case might be, just like a student today might associate. Socialism with abortion or other progressive causes, rather than the ideology itself. So uh, that was one of the main things that attracted me. Yeah, to the Yeah, I mean that, that, yeah. That,
0: that's terrific. So the book, the book, in a, in a sense, has a, a before, during, and after yes. structure to it. So the House of Government is where they live at the the, the apogee of of, of Stalinism. Uh, these are the people who actually put together the Five Year Plan, which itself is is seen as some kind of defeat of the uh, uh, the millenarian ideas that they had mm. as revolutionaries that once they 'd achieved the revolution as if by magic you know all want would disappear, mm. you know everyone would be writing symphonies in the afternoon, and instead it was just this grinding dump of a place <laughs> yeah. uh, and and, uh, and all they had all they could come up with was like five year plans and needing all these this vast bureaucracy to run it so mm. Embodied in this house, but it, so it does start with that revolutionary ideal, as you say. Yes. There's these these, um, these young people who fixated on these ideas that if only we can have a revolution, mm-hmm. then you know the peasants will be free, the workers will be free, Poland will be free, whatever it was.
6: Yeah, and the thing is, they so they start out as young people, uh, as idealists who think that uh, you know they develop this flame of hatred for capitalism and everything that it stands for. They become really embittered but they never uh, let go of. They never get to that point of disillusionment I guess until they start being rounded up and shot like they cling on (laughs) to that they cling on to that dream for so long and um, yeah it's very obviously you know when I started reading it you know it ends badly you know everyone's going to die Mm -hmm. but it's still uh, it's, it's sort of hard to understand how they manage to Hold on to that utopian the, ideals for so long. The
1: the the architecture of totalitarianism is really interesting. So, um, I actually have written a little bit about in the past um, the communal apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, for the people who weren't at the top of the power um, structure, particularly in cities like Moscow and um, uh, what is of course St. Petersburg, um, uh, th- people tended to be shoved into large shared apartment complexes. Um, You would get one room for a family. That would be the sleeping and dining room or just the sleeping room. And then they would share a kitchen. They Mm -hmm. would share um, uh, uh, toilets and other facilities. Um, And part of the purpose of that was, um, well, they'd, they'd confiscated all the rich people's houses so we can pop lots of people and there's massive influx into the cities um, because of collectivization but the, and industrialization but it was also to break down privacy so it was yeah. to break down the idea that you had a unique family unit that was against the state that could close its door that was um, hidden away from from political power as well and th- this is this is a fascinating. Parallel story to that. And yeah. it, I mean, just listening to and, and I wasn't familiar with this, um, uh, with this complex, but you know in, in political power in our society, they all live separately. They, yeah. they all live in their own houses elsewhere, and if they live in apartments in large cities, they'll live in a different apartment mm-hmm. complexes. But there was obviously a political decision made that they had to live together, I guess, in a mutual mm-hmm. surveillance yeah
6: it's really interesting uh, I went to Russia when I was 14 actually and stayed in uh, in Moscow and St. Petersburg in those old apartment buildings uh, and I was traveling with just it was just me and three from my family and we found it so crowded <laughs> just the four of us uh, you know like the bathroom you can barely fit into um, and so you know just imagining you know 20 12, 12 or 20 people, pe- in yeah, or 20 people uh, mm. crammed in there. You know, and like the room, one of the rooms was wallpapered with old newspapers from the '30s, and it was uh, so it was really interesting. But yeah, so as you say, these are Stalin's henchmen, basically housed together. They're constantly, I guess, under watch. They. I I mean, it's hard to.
0: But here's the thing, actually. No, this this is uh, I picked a page at random Mm -hmm. last. You're going to do a reading for us. (laughs) I I am going to do a reading because. Um, there's a story beyond the story you're telling Chris which is uh, that that socialist architecture that you described was actually again seen as a defeat by the by the utopian revolutionaries um, who had been working uh, in the mid mid 20s on on what architecture should look like you know in a revolutionary world and many of them had, a, had been drawing up plans essentially which were going to abolish you know, the bourgeois institution of the family entirely. Mm. Basically, they, it was like barracks. This is very much Plato's ideal. You know, the men would live in a barracks, the, the women and perhaps the children in another if the children weren't being raised somewhere else. Communal altogether. child-rearing. And, and it was really only um, in in the... Cons- and so even of this particular building, they saw it as a defeat. Um, so the architect, Pasternak, is, is quoted here. He said it represented a negative fact of our housing policy, the, uh, this spread of individual apartments which predetermine the nature of our dwellings and our urban life, an incorrect interpretation of the idea of a communal house uh, results in the postponement of the introduction of new social relations into the masses. I mean, they were, they were disappointed with Stalin that he hadn't taken this opportunity to abolish the family unit altogether <laughs> and and, uh, and it was seen as only the reactionary nature of the... Um, of the masses who strangely husbands wanted to live with their wives and vice versa <laughs> and they actually wanted to be with their children so well
1: this gives me an opportunity to quote the guardian again because um it is it is Speaking a, a factor it is a fact of life that the guardian actually has uh, looking at all these and wanting to re- read reviews of all the books that we're talking about In this episode, um, the Guardian has the most reviews, which you know. So that's a service they provide. But their take on this book, I thought, was was well fascinating because um, uh, I think they agree with you, Scott. To be honest, I think they agree. Um, uh, The house. So I'm going to quote a little bit, um, and they describe the area that the house had been built on um, as a place with a power station and factories, alongside frequently flooded. Um, street It, it was known as the swamp. It was, yeah, it was literally, no. <laughs> lit- the literally known swamp. as the yeah. swamp. Yeah. Um, uh, and everybody seemed to believe that the world was sick and would not last much longer um, in this uh, in this swamp. Then, and the Soviets' New Jerusalem would be clean, rational, and machine-made. The author treats this as pathological as seem, uh, but but in the Guardian's view, this seems like a fairly uncontroversial response to the realities of Russia in the twentieth century. Oh. <laughs> So you know, to to be fair, I mean, they obviously just wanted to fix the fix the problems with with planning.
2: <laughs> and so yeah,
0: forth. isn't it good to know that Corbyn's going to come in and once yeah. again usher in this new period of <laughs> the, the,
1: There is a there is something else that actually links the two books together again, and um and this again I, I take from the Guardian. And so, one of the things that um the Guardian author, uh, Guardian reviewer objects to is well, in in a funny way, it was a cosmopolitan house. So um, uh, their argument is that um, uh, the people in the house of government were Latvian, Jewish, Georgian, Ukrainian, and Polish. Um, and when that house collapsed, if you will, metaphorically and, and, um, uh, and physically, then Soviet-style communism turned into a sort of Nationalism, nationalist communism, or something along those lines. Is there an element that this was a cosmopolitan version of Bolshevism, a tra- I mean, the transnational side to it?
6: That's an interesting idea, actually, because obviously later on, uh, Stalin's reign, I guess, developed a, a very anti Semitic streak. There were obviously purges of Jews later on, which, you know, people were like, oh, it's never going to happen and now that we've abolished Tsarism, there are going to be no more pogroms and so on. So, yeah, it does become very intolerant um, and not the multicultural utopia that they had dreamed of. So I guess...
0: Yeah, cla- yeah. their claims to being truly multi-ethnic uh, multiracial, cosmopolitan, weren't actually born out in practice anyway. So once no. again, the Guardian's got this invented version of no, communism. No, 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 I mean, I, I, a, I don't think that... There's an
1: ideal Guardian vision of um, I mean, it was, yeah. you know, Vienna
0: of the 1890s was a multiethnic, multiracial, cosmopolitan yeah. melting pot and they didn't exactly. have to
6: be bloody I, I do want to, do want to clarify before. that I'm not pro-Guardian yeah. in this story. <laughs> I mean, Russia, before the revolution, had, had had all these different languages and cultures and religions... Uh, You know, coexisting together in this huge country. So, the idea of this building being this, you know, shining beacon of, (laughs) you know, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's it's uh, (laughs) and yeah, and you know, to say that. I'm glad I raised it. Yeah, and (laughs) they all end up getting shot, regardless of nationality, anyway. So it doesn't do it doesn't do the cosmopolitan. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, very good. Uh, no, this I think this uh, – thank you, Theodora. This this book actually is a is a landmark, I think. Mm. Um, uh, that's one that a lot of people will be reading in 2020. It will probably take them most of the year to get through it. <laughs> yeah. uh, YouTube
1: viewers will notice that we've got two copies on the desk because Scott was very excited to bring his in as well.
0: <laughs> yes, no, no. But Theodora's got the hard back, so I'm a little yeah, bit well, jealous yeah, now. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's very heavy. Thank you once again to Kurt Wallace. Thank you. And Theodora Pantelidge. Thank you. Well, Chris, that's been a terrific discussion of some great books. It has been.
1: I can't wait to read at least some of them. Yes, that's right. We'll <laughs> have a very heavy suitcase as we
0: uh, as we disappear for the yes. uh, summer break. Yes. And uh, I would like to say thank you to our guests today, Bella Debrera, Andrew Bushnell, Pete Gregory, James Bolt, Theodore Pantelik, Kurt Wallace, and, of course, a terrific crew in the studio, uh, Josh Stranger, Saul Muscatel, Steve Walsh, Uh, you've been a mensch it's been fantastic we'll be back with episode 2 of our special summer series of books to read and to gift to other people next week